Okay, we're ready to begin. Uh, today, is, t- today is Monday, December 13th, 2021, and here we are in Yerushalayim where we don't yet have a winter. And as my daughter found out in Kibbutz Chavetz Chaim, where she spent last Shabbat with her machakanim, uh, it's good for humans, but the farmers are crying. And we'll be crying when we have to pay twice the amount, <laughs> as is it's a Shemitah year, and put that together with lack of rain. Okay, um, we, uh, I, I just want to mention, I mentioned in class that my dear Chava growing up in my very formative years was Chaim Noble. And it was with Chaim Noble that uh, we went into Satma in Williamsburg and saw the Rebbe, etc. And I wondered how he's doing. He's a year younger than me. He's no youngster. And someone listening, Rabbi uh, David Max from Richboro, Pennsylvania. And he wrote to me that uh, the Rebbe mentioned Rabbi Chaim Noble these last two weeks, several years ago. I met him in Rochester, New York, on Yantep, where he was visiting one of his sons, and I was visiting my brother. I mentioned to him that the Rebbe quoted him this year, and in Washington, Rabbi Noble told me that he visited the Rebbe when he went to visit Israel a number of years earlier. I'd like to update the Rebbe that he still lives in Fatbush, and Baruch Hashem has a beautiful family, L'Shemu Tiferet, with his children involved in Habatzah Torah. I'm friends with a number of them from Yeshivat Chavetz Chaim, especially close with his son Svi, whose mamish and Ilui are going and learning. So I say once again, a little good came out of the Bronx. Uh, yesterday's shir, I said something and I realized I never finished it. I told you the Hashgacha Pratir is overwhelming, and the story of Chanich Fishman, I was dealing with the, uh, the Rabad, the Ravid, and the whole question of uh, leaving over the last piece of cake, which Reb Hanich got from Reb Yerushim Levavitz, but we found it here in the Rishon, says exactly the same thing. So I told you the story how I uh, came to Reb Hanich and I told him today I made your son an American, I took him to a Yankee game, and I told you the story that 21 years ago in Melbourne, I started a public talk with, it was the big, biggest talk, 400 people present, the mob scene. And I said, today I became an, um, an Australian. I went to my students, took me to the Melbourne football game. Or, or it's a different type of football than America. And I showed the hat they bought me and they signed it. Well, would you believe it, this interview with America everything I told you yesterday took place a week ago on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. I called America. I told him, can I call you? It's easier for me to call you than for you to start chasing me. Can I call you? Midnight, he said, till 12.30, we're up. So I call, interview, they're recording it, everything, the Fishman family. Would you believe it that Sunday afternoon on my way to Mincha Mariv, I meet one of the families in my building. He's from London. She's from Melbourne, the Kittsburg. Should live and be well. And they tell me, we have regards for you. Oh, they were raving what you did for them, etc., etc., when they were your students. Who do you think the regards was from? The family that took me to the football game in Melbourne. Could you imagine? I spoke about it Sunday morning, 21 years later, and that after, and, and they apologize that they can't visit, 
they were they have children living here and they have a, a bar mitzvah the grandson so that they're in Efrat but they were with the Kitzbergs who Melbourne the connection okay that's what I didn't finish yesterday all right let me roll today is a fascinating shir once again I want to make clear that oh you didn't turn it on they didn't turn it on okay Turn it, well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, they didn't mute. Uh, they, We're not on you. Gentlemen, y- Yomo, do you hear what's going on? They're going to give you a failing grade. You're not worried, I see. All right. I am worried, but uh, okay. But this recorded, right? We recorded it here, so I don't have to... Re- 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 Recording re- in progress. Ah, okay. All right. I continue. But you heard what I said before, right? I don't have to repeat anything. Am I right? Jack, shake your head if I'm right. Okay, good. Thanks, Rabbi Twesky. Thanks. Okay. As I said before, I'm quoting from a volume which was written by a Satma, but he attempts to be semi-scholarly. And he has a beautiful footnote that he knows that everyone will question these stories about the Rebbe, and he's only recorded stories that he knows to be absolutely true, at least totally accepted by the Satma crowd. In addition, I explained to you last week, and it's very important to understand who the Satma Rebbe was, what it's like to grow up a Rebbe. Mark me if I turn off the... Uh, uh, you know what to do? Uh, uh, the... The big button, just press the big button at the bottom, right. Turns look good, thank you. I warmed up the room, but I don't want it to be too warm. It's, uh, we gotta feel a little bit of winter. Um, what it means to be a Rebbe. A brilliant kid, surrounded by people who adore him. The blood in his veins. Uh, no one is ever going to tell him off. Uh, he doesn't play normally with kids on the street. Uh, you have to understand this. He's getting a very self-centered interpretation of life. And uh, this plays a role with Rebbeim. It's very different than the literature world where you can publish a safer and um, other literature gedoigim will take issue with you and there'll be a machloket and... Uh, some will agree, some will disagree, but you're exposed even to Talmidim who will sit in front of you with a semi-critical attitude. And this is the literature world, as we'll see when we deal with Eastern Europeans, Rat Hashem. The Hasidic world, the Rebbe is a world unto himself. And the truth of the matter is, he does not have to interact with anyone else outside of his Hasidim. And the interaction with his Hasidim is more of a king giving orders than uh, someone who's first among equals. It's a different feeling, a different atmosphere. And this is important to understand because it plays a big role in the subsequent life of the Satmuruv and his public posture, as we will see. Now, he's 17 years of age his parents have made a shidduch for him when he was uh, I believe 7 years old already and I explained to you last week that this is common in Hasidic circles we also touched upon a problem which may haunt us in a few minutes 
that uh, they're constantly intermarrying, and you can understand why they want. It's like royalty, and they want to protect the money, the yichus, the prestige, the blood, and all that goes with it. But I need not tell you when first cousins marry, even second cousins, it's not the easiest, but second cousins at least statistically have much less problems. First cousins already, and research has been done, and I was sent an interesting article, uh, some states permit it, some states don't permit it. Al pi we do permit it, but it's not encouraged. So there is a lot of illness ultimately, and we'll see time and again, in, in, even in the Satmarov's family, his children marry first cousins. The Satmarov was not a first cousin, was a more distant relative, and the parents knew each other, and the shidduch was made. Uh, he married the daughter of the Plancha Rav, Rav Avram Chaim Horowitz, and he already lived in Poland. On the, he was further away from Hungary, where, where Satmar was located. It was Polish, Ungarish, families that matched. The Kala's, the Kala's name was Chava, and uh, they're preparing for the wedding, and the Satmurov's father, the Sigaturov, takes ill. And uh, time is ticking away, and uh, he tells his son, we have to make the wedding a little earlier, I want to be sure I'm alive, I want to be sure I feel better, and they rush it a little earlier, and the Satmurov has one concern. He says to his father, but I don't yet have Rabbeinu Tam Tfilin. Now, according to what I'm reading here, and I assume that this is correct, in Satma, they don't put on, they don't start putting on Rabbeinu Tam Tfilin until they marry. It's not like Lubavitch, where the Lubavitcher kids already at the age of 13 are putting on two pairs of Tfilin. Satma, a little bit more reserved, and the Rabbi Yoelish tells his father, and again, again, you have here a great difference between the Hasidic world, the Litvisha world. Uh, you, you all know I've quoted the Vilnagon to you many times. There are many variant versions of what the Vilnagon said, but essentially he said, if we're going to worry about different shitat on tefillin, Rabbeinu Tam and Rashi, the Seda Pashiat, will have to come up with like 24 different pairs of tefillin, each one according to do the Kesher and how you do the Kesher and do you redo the Kesher, etc., etc. That's a literature approach. Siddhisha approach, Alpi Kabbalah, Rabbeinu Tam tefillin are very important and they don't want to wave it away. They load up some levater. And we, Litwakan, I didn't wear a talus until I got married. Here, too, there's a very smenhagam Charlie. I guess you put on a talus when you turn 13, right? That's the German minute, which, by the way, is correct. I don't know how the Litvish, you know, because what winds up, you can have some people uh, that uh, are in their 40s, and they're still not wearing a talus. They're not married. I, the German minute is more correct. I have a feeling that the rub encouraged, uh, if people asked them, that the young men should put on a talit. But the, but the Satmarov is worried, the future Satmarov is worried, he left never been with Tantzillin. So his father says, don't worry about that, I'll take care of Rabbeinu Tantzillin. 
What bothers me more is your pshetl. What you're going to say? So many famous rabbanim are going to be at the wedding, and I want to be sure that you have something good to say. So the Sapmudov runs to the base medrash, comes back a few hours later, and uh, he says to his father, again, I'm living it in Yiddish, ich bin great, I'm ready. And his father says, okay, and the kid rolls, and at the end of an hour, his father says, genug, enough. He's overwhelmed, the Sapmudov. Again, uh, I'm overwhelmed. I, I know some people that don't call, I, I knew in my lifetime, people who don't call it Torah Kula. No, everything and beyond Torah it's overwhelming and the father dear kid of 17 wow anyway the wedding is rushed 11 days later the father dies and the Satmurav says now I understand what my father meant when he said I'll take care of the tefillin he died and Rabbi Yoyalish inherited his father's Rabbeinu Tam Tfilin. So, uh, that already beautiful story. What you see, Hasidim interpreted the father knew he was going to die and knew that he would take over the Tfilin. And this is how Rabbi Yoelish begins putting on his father's Rabbeinu Tam Tfilin a few weeks after his father's death. With his father's death, Rabbi Yoelish's older brother takes over the rabbinate in Sigit. And Rabbi Yoelish starts commuting back and forth between Sigit, where he has his widowed mother, and Poland, where the plancha Rav is rabbi in a shtetl. And he's now exposed to Polish Jewry, going back and forth, and very close to his father-in-law, but there's a tremendous void in his life. His father is gone, his Rebbe Muvak is gone, and seeking, searching, looking. And here let me come to a very important part of today's shir. How many of you lived in Israel in the 1970s when there was practically bloodshed between Bells and Satma. Uh, Charlie, remember you were too busy working on your doctorate at the time. I mean, there were perhaps more important things in life. And I'll tell you what, it, it was a war fought here and a war fought in Williamsburg. Ultimately, they had to reach a truce. You know why they had to reach a truce? Because in Israel, Bells outnumbered Satma 100 to 1. In New York at that time, Satma outnumbered Bells 100 to 1. But why, why the war, why the war? And here, let me give you a little background, and these are the facts, and it's fascinating. because for me, I've lived it. My wife, by the way, comes from very big Bells Yichus. Her great-great-grandfather, or great-great-great-grandfather, was the cousin for the Sashalom, the first Belzer Rebbe was the Shlich Tzibur. And the, the first Rebbe, Rebbe the Sashalom, his wife's name was Malka, and my wife's name is Malka, and uh, some of the BMTs, BMT, some of the Gris fellows, at one time we used to have, once a year, all the people studying here for the Rabbinate Reform, conservative, orthodox, used to get together, 
and have a tour with the, with, with the Jewish agency. And it was an interesting experience. And uh, we wind up in Bells, seeing what they're doing here. And I tell the Rebbe's Gabbai Klein, he's no longer alive, was one of the big Gabbayim. And uh, I tell him, you know, about the first Belzer and his wife, and he almost fainted. We we can't do that. How do you know it? You know, he sees a clean-shaven, why you guys? He figures, ah, I must be an, an Amaretz, uh, etc. <coughs> At least maybe he gave me credit. I know Rabbi Salavechik Shiram, but beyond that, what should you know? Oh, did he become my friend? And I remember the Reform and Conservative rabbis were looking, you know, like also, look, man knows so much. We punish Shalom. If I could quote, the, I, if I would remember Charlie Shas, all that I've learned in Shas and Baiskiv, like I remember Narishkite, wow, would I be a big lantern. But what can you do? The Narishkite remains, but the Shas, so I tell you, I told you the word, Mark, you ever hear the Rub's word? The Rub asked my very question. Why do we learn so much if we forget? So the Rav said it's like going to Mikvi. You come out of Mikvi, you dry. You dry off, but the Kedusha remains. The Lerzi's a Litvishavat. This is a wonderful Litvishavat. When you learn Torah, the Kedusha, you forget, but the Kedusha, you're a different person. So uh, let's talk about bells. How did Bells begin? Bells began in Hungary. It's a pure Hungarian Hasidic. I believe it bordered near, it was near Austria, Czechoslovakia, near that area. That's why a lot of the Bells ran away to Vienna uh, after, before World War One and during World War One. They saved their lives getting away from the battlefield. But Bells was very strong, and Rav Shalom Rokach, the first Bells Rebbe put a lot of stress on davening, on beautiful shuls. In other words, each Hasidus has something that characterizes it. When you talk about Lubavitch, you immediately talk about outreach. You talk about Ger, there you talk about authority. The Ger Rebbe, until recently, always ruled with an iron hand. Now there's the first split in Ger in their entire history. Rebshol and Gabaye. Uh, I happen to know Rebshol personally, Adam Gottel. And uh, you talk about bells, no, you tell me, what do they talk about on the television here, the radio? Beautiful shuls, the Beit HaMikdash, the biggest shul in Israel. When you approach Yerushalayim, what do you see from the highway? The bells shul. We, my wife and I once went on a tour of it, and they we were in England, and we couldn't get over how smart Bells is. We're in this magnificent home in England, London, not poor people. They're, you know, they're always giving lectures, all right, that people appreciate. And in the home, the centerpiece in the living room is the seat they own in the Bells shoe in Jerusalem. And every seat in the shoe has two owners. The main owner who put in, I don't know, $100,000 to pledge the seat. And a secondary owner who put in $10,000, but he's only allowed to use it if the person from London is not there. You follow how it works? They're very smart. I saw this man, that seat. 
my little Shirai, sorry gentlemen, how much of Shas do you know? What can we talk in learning? Let's see, come on, put your money on the table. That's a Litvak. A Chassid looks at, oh, he speaks of the shoe, what they, and I understand him. He says, my grandparents survived with miracles. My aunts and uncles were killed. Bells was uprooted. Take a look what we rebuilt. That shul is North Yerushalayim. It's bigger and more beautiful than anything we had in Bells. You have to understand their point of view. Now, the first Bells and Rebbe was succeeded uh, by his son, Rebbe Sacha Dov Rokach. Uh, Rebbe Yisachar, uh, actually there's Rebbe Yoshua is the middle Rebbe. There was, there was Rebbe Shalom, Rebbe Yoshua, Rebbe Yisachar Dov was the third Rebbe. He's the father of Arala, Rebbe Aaron, who I spoke about yesterday in Shia with the 56th war. Now, Rebbe Yisachar Dov, uh, let, let me give you his years so you should put him into context. 1851 to 1926. 1851 to 1926. Uh, um, are you Maury? No, I'm David. One second. Have you been here before? Yes, I came with my father, Rabbi Katzin. Your father? Rabbi Katzin. Ah, Rabbi Katzin. Um, because I, there's a guy, Maury, who showed up once and never showed again. David Katzin from Machon Lev. That's who we're talking to. All right, we go back to 1980. Wow. Welcome. Anyway, look at his years. By that time, there was tremendous challenge to the Torah world. I got an email, Yomo just typed an answer for me. I got an email from, I believe it's Brooklyn, a machanech, a teacher. Obviously, uh, I think Svadik. And he asked me, why is it that the Ashkenazim have Reformed Jews and conservative Jews and Apikosim without an end? And the Svatic world, you don't have that. So I answered him very simply that we Ashkenazic Jews who were exposed to enlightenment as early as 1750. Could be even before, actually, Charlie, but... I don't want to say 1762. You know what 1762 is. That's when Mendelssohn left the ghetto. But uh, even, we, even earlier, the, the lights of like it pulled, it pulled. Look what happened to us. Look where we stand today. I mean, just look the heartache. America, the Secretary of State, the Ambassador to Israel, the President, everyone intermarried. Those are Jews. When's the last time they made Kiddush on Friday night? In Machalo Shabbos. It's Ovdei uh, and the Chazal were very right. If you don't make Kiddush, if you don't acknowledge there's a God, it's nothing. Then you're, you're the God. You become the God. You worship an idol yourself. But the Svadim didn't face the challenge until at least a hundred plus years later. And they already saw what happened to the Ashkenazim. They were more insular to a certain degree, more secluded. And Baruch Hashem, although Ben-Gurim did a good job, I told you, I suffer when I see uh, an Ashkenazi 
starting his car on Shabbos. No, I say to myself, if he was living in Germany or Paris, he'd be doing the same thing. When I see a Svata kid who has no knowledge of Shabbos, it breaks my heart. His grandfather, his great-grandfather, all right, we have a lot of work left to do in Israel. But we're getting there. Don't be depressed. But coming back here, a tremendous problem developed that until today, we deal with this problem. We're challenged by the problem. There's controversy over the problem. By the way, in Israel, you feel it less than in Chutzlar. It's for obvious reasons why. Because in Israel, we're all together. We're one people. We're one army. Our lives, uh, you know, at moments of tension here, we all join together. Chutzlaretz, uh, we're totally on our own, separated. How do we deal with non-religious Jews? That's a haunting question. Germany, the biggest battle was fought in the 1860s, the 1870s. Rab Shumshul Firel Hirsch said, you all know my lectures from 20, 30 years ago, absolutely separate. Charlie, what's the word? Austritt. Nice German word. Walk out. Austritt. Nothing to do with them. Who are they? Rotten, vicious, malicious, hideous, heinous, ruthless, depraved, degenerate, about surreptitious Jews? With a question mark. Or the Wurzberger of Rabbi Yitzchak Zelikman, Bamberg, I taught, I taught descendants, both of Rabbi Hirsch and both of Bamberger. And can I her? His approach was don't push them away. Keep the channels of communication open. This is, you know, can be said very simply, but halachalamaisa, what do you do? I give you the simplest example. Uh, you run a teaching seminar for all Jews. Come, learn something about Yiddishkeit. They have this in Russia. They have this in uh, before Corona. Corona is destroying the world, and I think it will destroy a part of the world unless the world acknowledges there's a God. Before Corona, Limud. Have you heard of Limud? Limud. Now, how does Limud work? I come to England. The first thing they ask me do you want to participate in Limud? So I'm not so stupid. I've been aghast. I'm a stranger there. I'm a guest. Uh, in Yiddish, there's a terrific expression. Aghast speit auf dem Tisch. A guest doesn't spit on the table. So I said right away, what does the chief rabbi do? He doesn't participate. I said, you expect me to come and I should participate if your chief rabbi doesn't. So Baruch Hashem. But what's the problem with Limud? Rabbi Lamb did participate. Rabbi Riskin did participate. What's the problem? It's very simple. We are now announcing our session for 9.30 in room 125, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Rakefit, professor of rabbinic literature at Yeshiva University, will be giving a lecture. 
in room 124, Rabbi Dr. Chaim Yankel, professor of rabbinic literature at the Shechta Seminary in Jerusalem, will be giving a lecture. In room 123, uh, Rabbi Dr. Shoshana Cardin, uh, professor of rabbinic literature at the Hebrew Union College in Rehov King David will be giving a lecture. And you know what you're saying? You're saying to the people, they're all equal. Pay your nickel and take your choice. Right or wrong? It's a very delicate problem. Now, Rabbi Rakefik will defend himself and say, I have a chance, I'm paraphrasing Rabbi Lem right now, I have a chance to teach Torah to Jews who know nothing and I shouldn't do it. But where do you draw the line? The implication. It's a very, it's not a simple question. This problem haunted us in the United States, new synagogue council. For how many years did a bit of battle go on? We've lectured on it over the years. I've made a living out of talking about synagogue council and the rub's position. All right, this problem came up in Hungary, Austro-Hungary, we'll call it, that whole area, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and the Belzerov joined with descendants of the Khatam Sofa, the most famous one, Reb Shimon Sofa, the Khatam Sofa's son, he and the Belzerov, Reb Yisachadov, they organized Marzike Hadat. Marzike Hadat, that was an organization of from Jews that had nothing to do with anyone who was not from. A total, total split. It, it to a certain degree, ran even deeper than Rav Hirsch's point of view. To a certain degree, because Halakha Maisa in the Hershian community, there were people, one brother was Hirsch, one brother was Bamberger, one brother with the word in German is the, the Gemeinde, one brother was part of the general community, Gemeinde community, the general, and another brother was an Austrit, but it never reached the level of enmity that you had in Hungary. Marzike Hadat. You recognize that name until today? What's the name of the Bells Hersha? Marzike Hadat. What's the name of their publication? Marzike Hadat. It lives on in Bells. Ah, oh, I can tell you even more. One of the greatest people I knew in my life was Professor Yaakov Katz. Uh, I trust you all know who I'm talking about. Rabbi Yaakov Katz, that's the ultimate Rebbe of my classmate, uh, Dr. Grach, Haravagon, uh, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik. He was his ultimate Rebbe with all that his father put into him and his family traditions. But uh, Dr. Grach is the ultimate in Chachmat Yisrael today. His work on Yaya Nesach is the golden rule if you want to see what can be achieved by someone who's a giant of Torah and can understand an, an academic approach as well. Oh. And Jacob Katz was the father. He's from Hildesheim. He, he, he was a little man, a little guy, maybe uh, Jacob Katz, five foot three. 
Davin Dinol Rifka. I got Pircha Kahanam from him every Shabbos. He was rector of Hebrew University. He knew Kala Torah Kola. There's nothing you could teach him. Yishayinim Achreinim. And he, terrific academic approach. I, I don't have time now. To, I could give you examples from his writings, but it's not, not important now. But what is important, when he was older than me, a student did a master's on Hungary and this approach of Marzike Hadat. That student later didn't want to go further. I think he got involved in high tech. Yeah, like I said yesterday, he, he, he wanted to make a living. And Rabbi Yaakov Katz took that master's, expanded into the last volume he published. I think it was over 90 when the volume came out. Hakera Shalonitacha. The split that was never joined together. It remained irrevocable. To Hitler. Hungarian orthodoxy, either you are on this side or you were neolog. Neolog is like conservative, new, neo. In Latin it means new. But there was never, like we developed, why you? All right, why you? When all is said and done is standing between two worlds and to a certain degree bridges them very effectively. You didn't have that. You didn't have that in Hungary. Now, I'll tell you this in parentheses. What's right, what's wrong here? It's very hard, very hard to be convinced of absolute truth. And let me tell you a, a true story. The Rav, you know, when you speak in public, you have to watch what you say. The Rav learned it the hard way. I once spoke of that. They said, why you, when they brought me back on the Rav's 25th yard site, in one of the talks, I, the most important talk I gave, I told the story and the audience was ecstatic. And it was with Bartons. I've spoken about it in class. I think you know what I'm talking about. 1953 or 54, uh, the Rav was asked at a sheer in public, are you allowed to use legume derivatives on Pesach? And the Rav said no, and Lefmany, we never used it. So someone popped up and asked, well, how come Bartons uses corn syrup on Pesach? And the Rav said, it's not right. Well, the next day, there were lawyers at the yeshiva. You don't know what Bartons do. The Rav had a, the Ryu, or the RCA, I think, signed off on it, had to publish a quarter of a page ad in the New York Times that Rabbi Soloveitchik absolutely states his full confidence in the hechsher of the OU, including Pesach. A year later already, they stopped using uh, uh, legume derivatives. So the Rav learned you had to be very careful what you say in public. Where the Rav was relaxed, then you could really bother him and get to see what was on his mind was at, for instance, RCA conventions. When he ate with the fellas that he was closest to, his Talmidim, man, you could bother Rebbe, there was no microphone, no recorders at the time. So they asked him about the Chatam Sofa, this whole point of view, Chadash Hashem in Torah, the Ketav Sofa, Reb Shimon Sofa, the, the Belzer Rebbe, and uh, 
this total split with those who threw Torah over their shoulders. And I'll tell you what the Rav said. He wasn't sure what was right. He said, on one hand, many people say, had the right wing not been so adamant and so forward in their position, the Neolog movement would have never been so big. And others say, thank God we were adamant. We kept a high percentage of Hungarian Jewry from. And I remember the Rev did it, and you can take either point of view. And by the way, it's correct. No jury in Europe had as high a percentage of from Jews as the Hungarians. Not the Lithuanians, ultimately not the Polish, not the Germans for sure. But this is an ongoing question that haunts us. Now, why am I telling you all this? The Belzer Rebbe became a father figure for the Satmarov. Satmar inherited more than anyone else, the Satmarov and the whole Satmar Chassidus, more than anyone else they inherited this position. This is not Chabad. Chabad doesn't separate from the world. Ki who's there? Chabad, remember what I told you a year or two years ago or three years ago? Remember Dov, what was his last name? Was, uh, excuse me? Dov Zakar, no, no, not Dov Zakar, I'm confusing. The, the professor at the uh, JTS, at the Zlatnik, Dov's professor, Rabbi Dr. Dov Zlatnik, gave a shear in JTS, in the Jewish Theological Conservative Seminary, on Tarek Mishpacha, who gave me Yashikayach, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Who told him to continue? It's actually, you, I remember students found a recording of it online, where the Rebbe is complimenting him and keep it up. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, it just came out, the Brooklyn Jewish Center, that was the biggest conservative temple in the world today is the tremendous elementary yeshiva for Chabad and uh, the Rebbe had a chassid that he said your job is to go this long ago your job is to go to the Brooklyn Jewish Center and befriend them and help them you can't stop in there, but everything else you can do there. And people looked at the Rebbe, what are you helping the conservative movement? No. 30 years later, the entire Brooklyn Jewish temple, Jewish center, they were offered a fortune of money by some um, Buddhist something or some other group. They sold it to Chabad for one fifth hundred the price. What they were offered there, Five million, they sold it to Chabad for basically $50, $500, that's it. And recently, the president, who had the man who had been the president of Brooklyn Jewish Center, he's an old man today, he came back and he stood in the dining hall looking at the Hasidic children and he was crying. 
and they asked him, why are you crying? And he said, I rejoice that we see continuity and Jewish children in what was once our temple. I mean, this is, so where do you, who's right? Who's wrong? It's a very, very delicate question, and I have to admit, I was, there were two people who fought the South in America, Rabbi David Hollander and Rabbi Louis Bernstein, right? You know, my, you heard my lectures, you know the history, and yours truly was friendly with both of them. Rabbi Hollander from the Mount Eden area, and Rabbi Bernstein from Yeshiva University was very close, uh, close to both of them. But who was right? Now, let's come back to what happened here in Israel. So here you have bells creating the Satmarov, creating this right wing feeling total separation. Fine. By the 1970s, Rabbi Sacha Dov's uh, grandson. Rabbi son was Rabarin. Rabarin had no, all his kids were killed by Hitler. His brother of Mordechai remarried when they came to Israel. The present Belzer Rebbe was born 1948. He married the Vishnitsa Rebbe's daughter in 1966, if I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm correct. And uh, by the 1970s, he started to take over. He was older. There were elderly, elder Hasidim around him, and he became a leader on his own. Took no advice from anyone, and he led. And Bells joined Agudat Yisrael. Do you know what that meant? Satma? Someone raised by Satma? Someone who believed in Satma ideology? And you are joining Agudat Yisrael? Agudat Yisrael? Innovators. Cooperate with the Zionists. They're closet Zionists. Eretz Yisrael, government, Menachem Begin. Who is he? And, and you join with them? This is what you're doing to your heritage? The Belzareb is a traitor to his forebears, to Bells, to Satma, and World War III broke out. Ultimately, the Belzareba won. Think where he's today, and think where Satmar is today. But this explains to you why the machloket, why the enmity, why the hatred, why the fistfights. Remember what went on between Lubavitch and Satmar in the 70s? Into the 80s? When the Chassidim fight, God have mercy. Sun's vision is bloodshed. The Chassidim fight. So they'll tell you, yeah, you Litvakin don't believe. If you really believe, you fight for your cause. No, no. We Litvakin believe just like you. 
But we also believe no one has a monopoly on Ashkafic truth. And Mark, I promise you, when you hold in your hands the volume at the honor of the Rub's 30th Yotzeit and you read the entry by a guy named Aaron Rakefet, you will say, wow, this is the best the Rebbe has written. Yours truly. Got it? Okay. You'll see it with all the sources. David, now you have the Satma. And the Satma Rov is growing up. He's not happy to be in Siget. And you see, wherever he was, and this becomes a pattern, wherever he was, it created some machloket. And again, I want to stress to you, he may have had nothing to do with the machloket. But people are people, batam abalabatam, Jews are Jews, am kisheyorif, nothing has changed. I can tell you in my neighborhood now, there's a shoe looking for a rabbi. They interviewed rabbis. What they did, one moron says to this rabbi, my daughter had just had a bar mitzvah, I took a safe Torah, I made a minion of women downstairs. What do you say about it, rabbi? Boy, oh boy, if he was interviewing me and I had the strength I have today, I'd smack his face and walk away. Chutzpah. But balabatma balabatim. He's in Sigurd. Who became Rav after his father died? His older brother. Balabatim were whispering, he can learn much better than his older brother, which was true. Uh, so always tension. There was the fact that he had become hashkafu-wise like bells. I need not tell you that by this time, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, Zionism was starting to conquer the Jewish world. Bells refused to have anything to do with it. It's the historic tragedy. In every community already, there were people who were, we'll say, closet Zionists. When we deal with Satmar in detail today, you'll find out there are many closet Zionists in Satmar today. A hundred years ago, a hundred and twenty-five years ago, there were people, closet Zionists, well, there was always machloket. The Rebbe is a big Lamdan, the Rebbe is not a Zionist. There was another factor. We're out of the ghetto. In the ghetto, Mike Zayde came to America 121 years ago. Mike Zayde came, he was about 16. I was very close to this grandfather because he lived with us from the time his wife died. I have a picture in my office of my grandmother who was at Sadekit, uh, clapping hands, and I'm sitting in the carriage on Washington Avenue. And she died, I was, I don't think I was, uh, she died, uh, Yud Aleph Tevet, 1939. So I was just about, well, let me just think, I was born Hanukkah 37, Hanukkah 30, I was just about two years old. And, uh, what was I about to say? Oh, so my grandfather 
grandfather came to America, he was uh, 16 or so. And uh, from the time my grandmother died, he lived with us till the my, always, I began my mother's hesped. It's just my mother's yotzan. He just made a siyum, mesechet nedorim, in a horifka on Friday. It's my mother's yotzan, and uh, I began my hesped that my mother was zolcha laricha jamim ninety-eight, and so much nachat because of kibud She gave such kibud You know, the, um, a father-in-law lives with you, and he didn't speak didn't speak any English, only Yiddish. Worked at night, worked in Pechter's Bakery, slept by day. You know, it was totally different than the rest of the house. But he didn't speak any Russian. The only Russian I learned from my grandfather were the curse words that helped me when I did basic training. I understood already what's going on. And you don't know what those curse words did for me in Russia, in Riga. At the, oh, God, they asked me sometime to tell you the story. Wow. I was a hero. And I once asked my Zayda, how can it be you were 16 years of age and you didn't know any Russian? Not of us, Yiddish. Reidnid Yiddish, Vastain Yiddish, Leinen in Yiddish. Asprach, Vasala Reiden, this language that they all speak. So my grandfather answered me, where we lived, it was like a ghetto. All we had to know was to curse the peasants or to say da uniet. That's the extent of my grandfather's Russian. Well, the Satmurov didn't know much more. He knew Yiddish. He knew some Hungarian. But people were ashamed. By now we're out of the ghetto. A rough, whenever he met with officials, he needed a translator to come with him. You follow? It's like when you were new in Israel in those days when you didn't have nefesh benefesh. I came, I knew more or less basic Hebrew. My wife knew Hebrew better than me. I always say about my wife, she's the only person who came to Israel knowing Hebrew. She was a Ramaz graduate. In those days, Ramaz was entirely in Hebrew. And I said 50 years later, 53 years later, she uh, barely can speak Hebrew. I'm overstating it, but believe me, Hebrew got worse over the years, and mine got better. Baruch Hashem. But uh, you're ashamed. The rough has to be. You may, you would go, you would go to the Mizraklita and bring in an Israeli friend with you who, who would understand. Today, I, I I have different problems. The mentality. There's not. I have to have my grandchildren help me out. But that's. It's not the language. It's it's just different lifestyle. But they were ashamed of the Rebbe. So you see, where does he find himself? What does he do? So he was very close, as we said, to the Belzer Rebbe. The Belzer Rebbe advised him, go to Satma. Satma, there you have a... Satma was famous because most of the Jews in Satma were still from. It doesn't mean that they were Hasidim. They were, were Mitnagdim, they were Hasidim, but Satma was famous that most of the Jews were from. And go live in Satma, teach, establish a yeshiva, you have whom to speak to. 
Now in Satma, the Rav was Rabbi Huda Greenwald. This was the Greenwald family. It's a very famous Hungarian rabbinic family. If you study uh, the Hungarian responsa of uh, 100, 120, 130 years ago, you find many Greenwalds represented. This was one of them, Rav Yehuda Grun, Green, Grunwald, Grunwald, and in English we would probably say Greenwald, but the original name is Grunwald. Actually, there was a big conservative rabbi in the Livingston area in New Jersey, I remember, was also a Grunwald, may have very well been from this family. And uh, uh, he went, he comes to Sachma, and uh, you see, the man attracted a following. People sought him out. Simchas Torah in the Hasidic based Medrash, which was smaller than the Ashkenazic based Medrash, a little crowd asked him, lead the Hakafat. And those Hakafat, I don't know, again, I'm a Litvak, how you can do Hakafat for six, seven hours? He did it. And they were overwhelmed, the singing, the dancing, the Hitla Avut, the Hitalut, going greater and greater. And before you know it, he opened a small yeshiva in Satma, and he already had a number of students. But all along, there was this whispering, Balabatim, what's he doing here? We have a rub. Who needs a satma who is so anti-Zionist? Who needs another Rav who can't speak the language of the land? See, there was always an overtone against me. Didn't I just see you on the screen? Oh, I thought I'm daydreaming. Okay, welcome, welcome, Slomo. Uh, I apologize, by the way, I apologize to everyone looking at me, but I have a classroom filled now, so I'm, I'm not looking at the screen. It's not like a year ago where I had only Yomo sitting here and I would be looking at the screen. But now I have to devote myself to the class and afterwards we'll ask if there are any questions from around the world. Now, he, he organized a little yeshiva, a little base measures, the reputation, but there was tension and he wasn't officially the Rav. He was just an individual who had a bit of a following due to his charismatic behavior, personality, and his whole form of living, his type of living, the, the davening, the dancing. I know I had a Rebbe, Rebbe Yosef Weiss. Rabbi Yosef Weiss was of Hungarian origins. He, uh, I, was he born in America? No, I think he came as a little kid. Uh, he came to America. But uh, Hoshana Rabba, he went to Satma. Washington Heights to Brooklyn. That's not a small trip by subway. That's how you went. And he would tell us he'd get back out of Shmini Atzeres like a half hour before Yantif. I said, Rebbe, how can it be? You, what time did you, you start there? At 9.30. Hoshana all day? A litvak? I don't know. I look at it. You didn't open the Gemara today? Come on, let's be honest. But you see, it's a different world. 
the Satmar of, they say his Hoshanis. Will you ever think that the Satmar of Hoshanis? But, but you know what I'm saying? It was overwhelming, and these people sought it out. Now, a number of small communities turned to him and offered him the rabbinate. In 1925, he basically left Satmar and became Krula Rav. I'm going to spell it out for you because I've seen so many different spellings. The way it's spelled in this book, K-R-U-L. And Krula Rav, K-R-U-L-E-R. And that's the first rabbinate he officially accepted. Now, okay. Now, Krul was a small community. But he was happy there. He was in the rabbinate there. But there too, again, Machloket, engendered by his very presence, anyone who was a Zionist or a closet Zionist, anyone open to more general education, they were opposed. And, and already you could hear the Machloket. A few years later, in 1929, the Rav of Satma passed away. And uh, with his death, the position opened. And a bitter fight was held who should succeed him. The Satma Rav was elected, but there was endless opposition. And here, Shlomo, you have to understand, the rabbi has to have a little bit seichel. 1962, I was re-elected rabbi of Lower Marian Synagogue. Board of Trustees vote nine in favor, seven against. You know what that's called in fancy English? A Pyrrhic victory goes back to the Romans. You can win a war and your whole army's destroyed. That's a Pyrrhic victory. All right, I had to leave anyway. I was appointed to the YU faculty. This is what I'm referring to by the 9 to 7 is Professor Charles Liebman. Zichron Lebrecher became famous on his article in Judaism where he analyzes the nine who voted for me and the seven who voted against. And it's a brilliant brilliant analysis but you know you got to have seichel you can't you 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 won the battle of the election but you certainly didn't win the war so the satmarov saw there's opposition and and uh, again the community was split the ashkenazim the little i wouldn't call them litvakim but the mitnagdim didn't want a Hasidic rav the Zionists didn't want an anti-Zionist rub, and even though where he was elected, he decided not to leave crew. If you remember, I told you weeks ago when I first started Satma, two books were actually written. 
one in favor of the Satmarov and one against the Satmarov. One about the Machloket and, and the election and it was fair and one that it was fraudulent and both books you can download from what's it called? Hebrew books today. Now, in 1934 there was another election and here the Satmarov came in with a clear majority. What happened in the five years between 29 and 34 was that the people wised up. You're not going to find the candidate who will stand against the Satmarov. He's the biggest London in the whole area. You're not going to find an overwhelming majority of anti-Zionist or Zionist. But he's the rub. Money was the big factor. We can't have two different rabbanim. Hakesev yanet hakol. They coalesced around the satma rav. David, you understand my English? Do you tell me, of course, I'm thinking of your father when I first met him and your grandmother and your great-grandmother, 19, January 1981, and we had to communicate in broken Hebrew. Whoever dreamt you'd be staring at me and understand words like Pyrrhic victory and coalesce, all right? Your mother's, your mother's name is Suras, I recall, from London. Yeah, I'm so happy to see you, you have no idea. I was, I'm a big Zionist, and when your father went to America, I was upset. But when I spoke at Sinai Academy, I understood what he was doing. But now I'm thrilled that his descendants are coming home. We didn't risk our lives to help you in Russia for you to live in Brooklyn or Queens. Take my word for it. There's no future there. God wants us here, and we don't need another Holocaust, God forbid, to tell us. We made mistakes, all right? They were honest mistakes. But now, the handwriting is on the wall. Ah, my dear, dear, dear students, here he is in Satma, 1934. The Munkach Rebbe is still alive and Baruch Hashem leading his Kikila. And, oh, what's going on? Anti-Zionism, stronger than ever. Anti-Agurich Israel, stronger than ever. But Torah learning, Siddish, Satma, Yeshiva, hundreds of students. The man is a leader. The man is charismatic. The man has a great following already. He is a shame dover. You speak of the Munkacha, all right? Lazy Shapiro. I don't say he had that same reputation yet, but the Satmar is right next to him. And now, let's pause for a moment. This idyllic life does not last long as we will, as we understand and unfortunately we will soon see. Family-wise, and here we touch upon the tragedy that I alluded to last week and spoke about uh, 45 minutes ago. 
there's constant intermarrying in the Hasidic families. It is not healthy. We spoke about smoking in the Sunday class. It takes a lot of guts to totally outlaw smoking, particularly for anyone of a Hasidic background, when you recall all the Hasidic rabbim who did smoke, as we spoke about yesterday. But we're better off if we don't smoke. We're a lot better off if first cousins don't marry. His wife, his first wife, Chava, Chava Teitelbaum, had heart problems. They had three daughters. It's exactly the family I have, exactly the family Rashi had. Whenever anyone asks my wife, what's your family? She says, like, she Rashi. Three daughters. And um, they all had heart trouble. And this may be nothing to do with the intermarriage, or it may be a result. As I told you, in the Tweskit family, I know a number of cases of mental illness, blindness, and they say it's all because generation after generation, first cousins married. Now, the Satmuruv had a lot of tragedy. His daughter Esther died as a young girl. Heart trouble. His other two daughters married. They each married first cousins. The next daughter who married I so sad. A few years later, she died of heart trouble. No children whatsoever. It was Rachel, the daughter Rachel, married to her first cousin, Rab Zalman Leib Teitelbaum. The other daughter, Chaya Reza, married her first cousin, Rab Lippa. Mayor Teitelbaum. That daughter, that family survived. We'll come to them later, uh, post-World War II. They wound up in Israel, from Israel, I should say, Palestine, from Palestine to America. If I'm not mistaken, they lived on the Upper West Side. He had a shtibble there. She died subsequently very young, heart trouble, no children. So the Satmarav, all three daughters predeceased him, and from his three daughters, there was no one left. And here there's a very moving story of with his second wife, with his first wife, I should say. Very moving story with his first wife. The first daughter died young. The second daughter died 
married, the wife would die next. When the second daughter was critically ill, and this brings back to mind the Shalachaf, you recall the story with the Nitziv, where uh, the Nitziv asked, uh, how much time is left as someone critically ill, his daughter, and the uh, just to daven put on tefillin before it becomes an onen. I hope I'm quoting it correctly that it was the Nitziv, but it's a famous story in Ish Halacha. Here the Satmarov was trying to find out how ill is his daughter. And the Gabbai comes to him and tells him, Rebbe, the cook they say is shvach, it's very bad. Not much time left. And the Gabbai says, Rebbe, I'll spare you the heartache. I'll tell your wife how ill she is to come and say goodbye. And the Rebbe says, no, no. I'll talk to my wife. And he goes to his wife and he, she asks, no, how, how is our daughter? And he says, not too good. I'm going to visit. I want to go with you. He says, I don't know if I want you to come with me. I want to go, I insist. And the Rebbe answers, well, if you insist on going, I want you to promise me that you will only say the following words. Hashem is Melech from the Eilam. God is King of the world. Made her say it, made her repeat it made her promise that that's all she would say. And they went, and of course, the daughter dies. don't have to tell you what it means to a mother to bury a younger daughter, a married daughter, but the Rebbe here acted with deep seichel. We don't understand God's ways. This is, if we understood him, what did Gabriel say? If I understood God's words, I'd be God. That's perhaps the most famous lines written by any medieval Spanish poetic writer. You can't do better. And uh, this enabled her at least to survive the tragedy at that moment. Later, a few years, she died. And the Satmarov was left without a wife, without a daughter at home, one married daughter, just Gabayim that could take care of him. Two years later, he remarried and that of course when you speak of his remarrying you're speaking of Rebetzin Feger and Rebetzin Feger quite a bit younger than the Rav I believe it was 25 years younger or over 20 years younger also daughter of a big Rav with big Yichis on her mother's side, her father's side. It was because of her that the Rebbe was able to survive Hitler. 
go to Palestine, come to America, and after the stroke, remember I told you the Rebbe had a stroke in 1968. There is no question in the literature world when a Rosh Hashiva has a stroke, he has to retire. You can't be a Rosh Hashiva if you can't give Sheyurim. All right, you can write whatever the stroke allows you to do. The Rebbe function ki'ilu, quotation marks over the word functioned as Rebbe till the day he died in 1979. He was held up, supported, surrounded by his wife and his loyal Gabbai, Rebbe Yosef Ashkenazi. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll get to them. But she played a major, major role. And she has very big shuyat. Uh, many of us have benefited Hachnaset Orchim of Satma. And that Hachnaset Orchim does not see blue, does not see white, does not check colors, does not look at what type of kippah you're wearing. Bikachoylem, uh, uh, I should say, exactly. Thank you. Bikachoylem of Satma. That was Rebitz and Fager who innovated it. She had the ability to raise millions of dollars uh, from her followers. I can tell you, I think I mentioned this, if not I mentioned it to m my wife recently, because I was just asked to give us come to a new volume, Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Dolphin. Have you read any of his volumes? He puts out a volume a year. It's a world of material. This volume is fascinating. It's Chabad in America, 1900 to 1950. So uh, it's not a finished volume. Every chapter can turn into its own volume. You have to research it properly, but it touches upon very fascinating material. And among what he talks about is in Chicago, he has on the various cities, the influence of Chabad, one of the cities, Chicago. And he talks about an old Nusach Arishul that has survived over a hundred years. It originally began where the Jews lived, and you know we Jews are constantly changing neighborhoods. And each time the shoe moved. And finally it reached the point where in its location, there was no minion. So, within walking distance, there was a nursing home. In Chicago, I don't know how many of you know the Chicago community, but at one time, I don't know, today Mark will tell us, the entire nursing home community was in the hands of survivors from Jews, mainly Hungarian, uh, although there was a brisker involved as well, who survived Hitler. And one of these nursing homes needed a minion. They had from people, some of the people were from, and, and the minion wasn't big enough, and they combined with Nusach Ari. So he describes the family that owned the nursing home and how they brought in Chabad, and the, this Chabad shul continues until today. That family he's describing, I stayed in their house I would say approximately uh, 40 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, excuse me, 30 years ago in Chicago. And these beautiful home, and 
in the living room, the focal picture was Rebetzin Feger. And they told me right away, we're Satmar Chassidim, but Chassidim of Rebetzin Feger, not the Sigaturov, you know, the Satmarov's nephew who succeeded him. You see, that's how powerful she was. And I told you, she, Mishpacha magazine would have a lot of difficulty with her because she said, Eibinun, new translate that, Eibinun, up front, right next to the Rebbe, mixed seating at Satma celebrations, Fabrengans. But she took care of him. Arichet Yomim Tovim. This was Fega. This was his second wife. And she becomes a dominant figure. Nevertheless, she already had no children, whatever the reason is. He was too old, or she or she was young yet. She could have had, the, but it could be he was the problem. Uh, I don't have to tell you. In Israel today, Puah, the work they do is unbelievable. But in those days, you didn't have it. By the way, the Belzer Rebbe, when this current Belzareba married already 10 years or something, you can check it all out, he didn't have any children. So he went to America to see the Satmarov. So publicly it was stated he went to get a blessing from the Satmarov. Everyone whispered behind his back that he went to get medical treatment and advice. At that time, America was more advanced than Israel. Today, Israel is much more advanced than America in this particular area. Shari Tzedek, etc. I don't have to elaborate. But very fascinating. And that's right before the Satmarov died. And then afterwards, Bells totally broke with Satma and joined Akurich Israel. Now, the Rebbe, leave alone his personal family, the Rebbe comes to Satma. How he comes, how he leaves cruel, is fascinating and indicative of the Satmarov always finding in Eitzah a way to solve a delicate problem. In cruel, he had a lot of people who loved him. There was opposition, but they were sorry he was leaving, but they understood that Satma was a larger community, well-placed, etc. So they wanted to make a big farewell party. In Satma, they wanted to greet him with a big welcome. You know what he did? The day that he had to leave, he snuck out early in the morning from Kruel to Satma, avoided the farewell party and got there too early for the big welcoming committee to receive him with a 24-gun salute. Uh, it's fascinating. Another problem, where will he daven in Satma? Remember, he's Rav of the community. The concept of a rabbi in a shul is a relatively new concept. When the Rav came to Boston, he was Rav of the Chevishas, 
there were like six, seven different shoes that joined together to form a Hefreshas. The Rav, every Shabbat, had to daven in a different shoe. He comes to Satma, so everyone figured he would daven in the Hasidic Shtibble. Is this working? Working? I hope so, it should be a drop ladder. He, 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 he would daven in the, in the Hasidic Shtibble. What do you do about the Ashkenazic shoe? So here too, he found an Eitzah. Shabbos Mavorchim, he would daven in the Ashkenazic shoe. The three other times, this is by the way, they would daven in the shtibble. And days that he had to speak, he would first go to the Ashkenazic shoe, daven shachris, speak there, and then go to the shtibble, daven musaf, and whatever talk he had to give there, he would then give there. This is fascinating. I have to tell you, my son-in-law's shoe, my son-in-law, <laughs> you know, he was uh, uh, 20 years in the army. He reached quite high rank and uh, comes out of the army and he's elected president of the shoe and he runs it ever since. It's many, many years. I think even when he was in the army already, he was running the shoe. It's a shoe that fell out of the old city in 48 and wound up in Katamon. So the Shulas had problems over the years. They've had, it's a, a shul of a lot of, lot of famous people, uh, uh, Supreme Court judges, uh, many medical doctors from Sharei Tzedek, uh, Lamdonim, Rabbi Shach's son over the years. Oh, has it had famous people. So uh, anything they fight over, they put to a vote. There was a big fight, uh, a fan, I don't want to mention the family, uh, I know the family going back generations, it's the whole problem, uh, did we, uh, were we wise taking women out of the kitchen? It's an, it's an ongoing problem. Today, Baruch Hashem, I, uh, we have women who know Shas and Paiskin better than, than I do at least. Were we wise? I don't know, alright, an ongoing, I struggle with this problem until this very moment, but uh, uh, we can't put them back in the kitchen, so we better figure out how they can learn all of Shas and Paiskim and beat Sidkaniyat. That's the challenge. Baruch Hashem. My own family, I've achieved it. So, and among uh, many of my female students for the 31 years I taught women, I've achieved it. Um, <laughs> these, these, uh, these are ongoing problems. So, one of the problems to have in the shul, some of the people wanted Kabach. Minyanim. Friday night, Kalbach. Other people said, no, it takes 10 minutes longer. And there was a bitter battle. And they finally came up with a solution. They must have learned it from Satma. Shabbos, Mavachim, Reish Friday night is Kalbach. The three other Shabbatot, regular davening. This was the Satma Rav. He found ways to satisfy <coughs> the people. I want to end off on a very important topic, scratching the surface. Yes, most of the people who gathered around him were captivated by him. 
Nevertheless, those who opposed continued to butcher, I don't know a better word, to complain, to, to speak against him, uh, not a Zionist, no general knowledge, etc. What was interesting was, and they recorded in the Sefer, the dress that he gave. And at times you didn't recognize the same man. In the big Ashkenazic shoe which attracted the mainstream of the people, he spoke about the need to wear a shaitel. And no woman has an excuse not to cover her hair. I'm quoting, and nowadays we have nice looking shaitels on the market. No excuse. Remember, in Lithuania, wow, I don't want to speak evil of my roots, but uh, pretty hard to find a married woman covering her hair. Poland, even there already, even in Hasidic circles. My wife's family said that Graham Meshbet's on her mother's side. Bell's on her father's side. Her grandmother was at Sadekit. Didn't cover her hair. The breakdown was already there. Hungary. No excuse not to wear a shaitel. Then when he spoke in the shtibel, he told off the chassidim, chas v'chalila, you should put on a shaitel totally, completely, absolutely forbidden. And of course, the Satma Chassid writing this volume calls attention that the Satma Rav gauged his audience. He wanted the maximum kedusha. In the Ashkenazic public shul, oh, they should wear shaitels and not go with nothing covering their hair. In the Hasidic shul, there, a shaitel looks like real hair. Preetzot. Don't wear it. Demanded much more. Shlomala, this takes us to a very important question. Who is the real Satma Rav? Mark, you've learned Rambam? I've gone through, I would say, the entire Mishnah Torah. And I've gone through good parts of the Moranavuchim. I had to, even though I have really no real interest in Jewish philosophy. I've spoken about that many times, but what can I do? I'm a Talmud of the Rav. The Rav would quote the Myrna Right, I admit, I went to graduate school, I took a class, Myrna Vuchim, right, absolutely. No, Yomo, who is the real Rambam? The Mishnah Torah or the Myrna Vuchim? No, I'll give you a simple example. Charlie, Karbanot. You know what? The Mishnah Torah, the greatest percentage. Kodshim, Tarot, wow. 
Kabbanat Avoda, the Rambam, is there one syllable there that Kabbanat will compromise? Open up the Marnavuchim. Compromise with idol worship. People at that time only understood sacrifice. The Torah elevated it. No human sacrifice. Dignified sacrifice. Have you ever gone through up Hish on Vayikra? Wherever he talks about Kabbonet, he gives reasons even for the numbers involved. Who's the real Rambam? Jews. What are you saying? Maybe the one in the Chivas of the Rambam. Chivas of the Rambam? Could be. It's an interesting point that John was making. That day he was responding to the real question. Could be. Let me give you one final example, David. There was a guy named Aaron Rothkopf. R-O-T-H-K-O-F-F. He was a young man in the 60s. He thought he knew a lot. You know, a young guy thinks he's a big shot. Believe me, you get older, you realize how little you know, but you got to keep on trying to gain it all. This week I'm finishing Mesechet Baba Kama, and I start Baba Metziah, going through Shasa, third time I'll say that, and I'm ashamed to tell you, I always thought Baba Kama I'll run through. I've learned it so many times. Boy, those, uh, the two Prakam, Hagosel Kama and Hagosel Batra, you got a, in the Cup, you got to hold your head for those Prakam. Ah. Now let's look at Rothkopf. Here he is in YU teaching Ashir in the Yeshiva. Wow. Dynamite. Demands. Elevation, inspiration. And here he is in Maplewood, South Orange, New Jersey, trying to build an Orthodox shoe where there are very, very few Orthodox Jews. When I got there, I think you could count them on Shermi Shabbos. One hand, one hand, not two, we'd have them in you. Oh my gosh, he's speaking to the sisterhood and poetry. The Judaism he portrayed in Reitz or YU or MTA, call it whatever you wish, very different than the picture he drew to his sisterhood in Maplewood, South Orange. Who is the real Rothkopf? Is he honest? Is this accurate? Who is the real Rambam? Who is the real Satmarav? My dear students, take my word for it. We can go on and on. Elliot, you've heard about the name Harav Dr. Yosef Dov Halevi Salavechik. Have you read Rakefit's biography of him in the first volume of the Rav? The Rav in Boston. It's a different person altogether, dealing with kids, teaching them how to take lulav and etro. He ran yeshiva and cholamoid so the kids should see a sukkah and lulav and etro. The Rev in New York with Allah lumdus and what he wanted out of you. Oh my. Gentlemen, live with the question. 
the answer is life. We have to deal with reality and who we're talking to. I would prefer to believe that the real Rambam is the Mishnah Torah. I think what Yomo said is very uh, elegant. It was polished by his Shuvat. We'll actually come to a Shuva Rambam in the Sunday class, introduce you to the best edited edition. The Satmarov had to do with reality, and it's to his credit that he knew Da Lifnei Ata Omeid, who you are talking to. My dear students, we've covered the Satmarov, a good deal of it, in Europe. Fascinating life story, a charismatic individual. And uh, we bring him and ourselves to World War II. I wouldn't miss next Monday's year for all the delicious chocolate bars that I saw in Amichai in Machna Yehuda last week, as I spoke about yesterday. From Almond Joy to every type of Hershey's every type of delicious second candy made in Manchester to Israeli lollipops I wouldn't miss next Monday year. We're going to go into Kasna for the first time a little bit deeper. And uh, I have a lot to reveal and fascinating sources. Sunday we pick up exactly where we left off. Rabbi Rubin, we will get a definitive answer uh, what did the Rabbi Menashe Klein have to say about dieting? But wait till you see what we touch upon next week. Very, very fascinating. My dear students sitting in front of me, are there any questions? I want to thank everyone for honoring me with their presence and until we meet again in health and happiness. Mark, open it up to the big world that is listening and let's see if there are any questions across this part of the ocean and the other part. Thank you, Evan. Okay. Are there any questions? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that I, I had this course to discuss the matter of Levi Shatalis with the route personally when uh, our Bechor was Bar Mitzvah. And Rabbi Wolgamoth had first planted the idea in our head. Rabbi Wolgamoth, his right. father, was right. the Rav in, in Frankfurt on Mine. Right. So right. His father <laughs> taught in... Abs- I'm yeah, sorry. His father taught in Hildesheim, who's one of the famous professors. Yes. And you, you must know Rabbi Wolgamoth's son, Shlomo. Right. Perhaps you know him. In any case, the Rav certainly concurred and he, he gave us a big smile. A number of us went over to him and he, and he nodded his head and he said, Rabbi Wolkenworth gave you good advice. To, to what? To put, up, put, up, put on the talus? Yes, absolutely. Okay. From our mitzvah age. And, and it was quite unusual, but um, uh, <laughs> he never said it to us publicly, but anyone who went over to him and, and asked his advice, he advised us to... Uh, yeah, no, I'll tell you why I couldn't say publicly, because the Lithuanians didn't put on a talus and it wasn't like the rev to break. But on the right. other hand, from the point of view of Lundus, 
it's terrible. You have today with all these singles walking around without a pallet, and, and I hope they're wearing a pallet cotton. You understand? Well, but uh, I, think, I think my children were a little were were, were a little, little bit um, disturbed about it initially, but but as they matured, I think they appreciated the fact that they wore talis in, in tefillah, and I think it impacted on their davening. Okay, and they can daven in kilat adat sure in Washington Heights. They wouldn't be upset that. that <laughs> Today, I don't know how many people are davening it. That's a different story. The neighbor has changed. But uh, at one time, how many kids would you have on a Shabbat? A good few hundred. A good few hundred. Okay. Anybody else want to comment? Many yekes start long before Bar Mitzvah. Well, that's like twilling. When did you start putting twilling on? I started... No, not, not a few weeks before. Years before. Years before? All right. Okay, nothing wrong with it. And uh, remember, the, the, the Rebbe held, call ein v'bat madlika neirat Shabbat. And the Erech HaShulchan brings down, it's beautiful, why shouldn't I, can, uh, let me interrupt the class with one true story that I've told over the decades, but let me tell it again, because it fits right into what we're talking about. Uh, there was a Washington hotel in Far Rockaway that was a Frum hotel and we were there one Shabbat. Uh, excuse me, Bell Harbor. Thank you. Bell Harbor. I hear, I hear, I hear. I put it. Uh, I put the location a little bit down, a, a little bit further moved to, to, towards the south. And uh, I, I remember at the hotel, we were there Shabbat. It was a simcha. There were other Jews there, and uh, my wife was lighting candles. We had two two little girls at the time. And these two little girls were lighting little candles with my wife. She was lighting big and they were lighting little. And there was a Holocaust survivor who was observing it. And he started, started to cry. And you can understand why. After going through that Gehenim and to see that there's continuity and that they're little children. And can I inherit? It was very wise of my wife to always have the little girls light candles. All right, I want to thank everyone for honoring me with their presence and to meet again in health and happiness. Rak Yisrael, Das